Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, August the 29th, 2022. It is currently 1219 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studios located right here in Abilene, Texas. I don't know what you were doing yesterday. I I don't know if you're at church. I don't know if you're having a relaxing day. But whatever, while you were doing whatever you were doing, something of great significance was happening. Now, now you may not think it was that significant. You, You may not think it was that significant. But the reality is it was just because of the influence of this individual. You see, yesterday marked the end of an era. There's no other way to say it. It marked the end of an era. And it's, and it's, and that the era that this person in a sense represents is one of great influence upon the evangelical Christian world. Now, you may not think it was good influence. You may think it was negative influence. You may be completely against it, but you can't deny the influence. Right? This is very important to realize. You may, you may think the influence was bad, but you can't deny the influence. Thinking the influence is sometimes what we have a tendency to do when we deny the, when we don't like the influence or we dis, disagree with the influence, we have a, a, a tendency to dismiss it. We have a tendency to say, well, didn't really matter. Who really cares? But I just don't think that's a right way to look at it. Like even when you go back in church history, you can see the influence of things that you may completely disagree with and you may think it's damaging. But any honest examination of history still has to look at those things that you dislike and look at its influence and not simply try to diminish it, deny it, or ignore it. I don't, I don't think that's the correct way of looking at it. And when you're studying modern church history, it's the same principle, right? Modern church history, there are things that have been massively influential on the Christian world. And you can't just say, well, ah, nope, I didn't like it. Didn't it didn't impact me? I, I don't know why many Christians love to like, well, I never cared. It never influenced me. Oh, well, congratulations, congratulations, because everything is about you. No, we're talking about the influence on Christianity in general. And yesterday marked the end of an era. Because one individual who is greatly influential upon the evangelical world preached. His final sermon as head pastor of a church that averages something over 20,000 people for weekly attendance, some crazy number. He preached his last sermon as the head pastor, as the lead pastor of a church that again averages over 20,000 people. And this church has been massively influential on the evangelical world. This individual came up with a way to do church. Now, whether we agree with it or disagree with it, his way, at least from a numerical standpoint, I mean, his church averages around 20,000 people a week. Clearly, from a human perspective, he was doing something right. His idea of how to do church ended up in a book, which is considered by many one of the most influential books in modern church history, and influenced thousands of, 
who knows, hundreds of thousands of churches to follow the same principles, the same model, and the same idea. Again, we may disagree with all of it. But sometimes, or at least for me, I can't speak for you. I do feel a little odd offering any criticism, right? Because here's an individual who, again, yesterday marked the end of an era. He preached his final sermon. He's influenced hundreds of thousands of churches and how to do church, and he changed the way people did church. He wrote books that had massive influence. It's hard for me to turn on the microphone coming to you from the Theology Central Studios here in Abilene, Texas, and offer criticism because let's be fair, right? If you drove past my church in Ovalo, Texas, you would be like, failure, failure. You're a failure. If you saw the number of people, you would be like, failure. If, if, even from a, even from this podcast, yes, we, we do pretty good. But I mean, come on, we're not that influential. We're not changing the evangelical world. So I'm basically a no one who's accomplished nothing and have done basically nothing as far as the Christian world is concerned. Who am I to offer any criticism? And I think that's, I think it's fair. And I have to admit that. I mean, this individual changed evangelical Christianity and I'm a nobody. I will die anonymous. I will die without ever accomplishing basically anything. And I, and I, and I can accept that fact. Oh, it's depressing and discouraging at, at times, but that's just the way it is. This man will be remembered. This man will be talked about. I will not. His books will be talked about. His method of how to do church will be debated and talked about. I will be nothing. And, and so I, so it seems odd for me to offer any criticism, but we're going to at least analyze, critique, review, and you can draw your own conclusions. Are you ready? I know I, I, some of you are screaming, who preached their last sermon? Some of you already know, but yesterday, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church stood in the pulpit and preached his final sermon. Rick Warren. Now, I don't know how much you know about Rick Warren. We'll just do a little bit of information. If you don't know, Rick Warren who was born January the 28th, 1954, is an American Southern Baptist evangelical Christian pastor and author. He is the founder and senior pastor of Saddleback Church, an evangelical megachurch affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention in Lake Forest, California. All right. Now, when you, uh, if you start going back to his early ministry, um, he, uh, he, he was called to full-time ministry when he was 19 years old at California Baptist University in November 1973. He and a friend skipped classes and drove 350 miles to hear W.A. Criswell preach at Jack Tar Hotel in San Francisco. Warren waited afterwards to shake hands with Criswell, who focused on Warren, stating, I feel led to lay hands on you and pray for you, according to the way the story goes. During his time at Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary, Warren worked at the Texas Ranch for Christ, a ministry facility of Billy Hanks Jr., where he began writing books. He co-wrote two books, the Victory Scripture Memory Series and 12 Dynamic 
Bible study methods for laity with Hanks and Wayne Watts. Now, that book is written somewhere before the 80s, before the 80s, like 1978, 1979, maybe 77 is when these 12 dynamic methods of Bible study for laity are put together with Rick Warren and two other individuals. Okay. Now, the reason I'm focusing in on this book is this book is where me and Rick Warren, in a sense, our, 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 our lives, in a way, interact. We, we come in contact with one another. And here's how it worked for me. I became a Christian in the 1980s, right, as a teenager. I've told the story how frustrated I was with the fact that I felt the church was not teaching me anything. And so I started looking for things outside of the local church for spiritual growth. And one thing I wanted to know was how to study the Bible because I kept being told to study the Bible, but the best anyone could give me was read, highlight. I mean, it was basically nothing. And I'm like, okay, someone's got to know how to study the Bible for crying out loud. This is ridiculous, right? Nobody could give me like an actual method, an actual system. So I made my journey from, well, between Buffalo Gap and Tuscola, Texas, and as and I drove to Butternut Street, located in Abilene, Texas, to the Bible bookstore. And there was a bin of books that they were like, you know, 25 cents, 50 cents. I mean, I mean, literally, like they were just basically giving the books away. I mean, I was waiting for the sign. We'll give you a dollar to take the books. These are books nobody wanted. These are books they were trying to get rid of because they were just taking up space and they obviously weren't selling. I go over there because I'm a teenager. I don't have very much money. And I'm looking, I'm looking, and I see a book on Bible study methods. And I'm like, what is this? I'm like, I don't know what it is. I don't know who this is. I don't care. It's Bible study methods. This is, if, if the, I don't know if these methods are any good, but I'm going to master these methods. So I took the book home, boom, changed my life. And those 12 methods of Bible study have been with me basically my entire Christian life. I've tried to teach anyone who will listen the methods. Now I have, I have constantly modified the methods and changed the methods and reworked the methods. And, and, and so in some ways, they no longer really resemble what was in that original book. But at the time, when I saw the name on the book, Rick Warren, I didn't know who he was, didn't care, and never gave it, I never gave it another thought. I never like, I, I literally, I never even, like, I never gave the fact, oh, Rick Warren wrote that book. Even later on, when he becomes, well, Rick Warren, the Rick Warren everyone knows, I, I, it took a long time for me to go, wait a minute. Wait, that's the Rick Warren who wrote that? Wait, that Rick Warren wrote the book on Bible study methods. Because if you read the book on Bible study methods and you kind of see what Rick Warren becomes later on, it seems like such a disconnect. Now that, that's a podcast episode in and of itself. All right. But that, that's the Rick Warren. Okay. Now we all know we could go through his entire, we could go everything about Rick Warren and everything that takes place. Um, he in January 1980. So in January 1980, so in the 70s, he writes those two books, the Victory Scripture Memory Series and 12 Dynamic Bible Study Methods, and he writes this with two other individuals, okay? Then in 1980, he begins a Bible study group with seven people and his wife at Saddleback Valley Condo in Orange County, California. In April 1980, Warren held Saddleback Church's first public service on Easter Sunday, and this was at a a high school theater with 200 people in attendance. Warren's church growth methods led to rapid expansion with the church 
listen, using nearly 80 different facilities and its 35-year history, the church now averages nearly 20,000 people in attendance each week. That is that is absolutely just insane. It's a little small Bible study, and next thing you know, it's 200 people. Next thing you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Now, that article says it's because of his, his church growth methods. Now, when you, when you supposedly have the methods, and this is what's crazy, he became known, and, and, and oh, this, this is so, mm, <laughs> there's so much to say here. He becomes more known for his church growth methods than he did his Bible study methods, because I'm just going to be very blunt here. People don't want Bible study methods. Pastors don't want Bible study methods. Church members don't want Bible study methods. Everybody wants church growth methods. They want their church growing. They want more numbers. They want bigger buildings. They want more money. It's just crazy. The man who wrote a book on Bible study methods that I think are some of the best Bible study methods ever put down on paper basically abandons those Bible study methods, throws those Bible study methods completely out in many ways. And it's like, I'm going to focus on methods on how to build a church. And those are the methods everyone wants. Those are the methods everyone paid to see, read, hear, and, and get as much information about as possible. I just think that's very, very, very interesting. All right. Warren, Warren taught, um, okay, in January 2009, Warren and the Reader's Digest Association partnered in the launch of the Purpose Driven Connection, a quarterly publication sold as a part of a bundle of multimedia products. In November 2009, the partners announced that the magazine had not drawn enough paying members and would cease after publication. Uh, uh, of the fourth issue that month. In June 2021, uh, okay, well, now, okay, no, we don't want to go there. That's skip, all right? Now, so he did try something in 2009 with some of the purpose-driven stuff, but here's what, uh, here's what I want you to, to hear. Warren taught the, taught the material that would one day become the purpose-driven philosophy of ministry to individual pastors who called, who wrote him, and Saddleback's early days. So pastors saw the growth of Saddleback and were like, how are you doing this? How are you doing this? And he began to teach pastors these methods. Warren gained experience teaching the material through his partnership in the Institute for Evangelical and Church Growth affiliated with Fuller Theological Seminary. In 1995, uh, Zondervan published Warren's best-selling book, The Purpose-Driven Church, which distilled many of the lessons he had learned while starting Saddleback Church and honed during years of training other pastors. After sharing the Saddleback story, the book makes a case for building a church around five purposes, worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism. Though... Um, through a, what Warren called a crowd-to-core method of church growth, he encouraged churches to reach their community, bring in a crowd, turn attendees into members, develop those members to maturity, turn them into ministers, and send them out on a mission. In 2004, uh, more than 10,000 churches of various denominations attended a seminar or a conference led by Warren. I mean, it's just, it's just, that book was so influential. Now, if we go to the actual, like, uh, uh, the uh, introduction here or the article here about the book, this is crazy. 
All right, the book was a bestseller a few weeks after its publication. The Purpose Driven Church has been translated in over, over 30 languages, and it's listed in 100 Christian books that changed the century. All right, in, in May of 2005, survey of American pastors and ministers conducted by George Barna, it was voted as the second book most influential on their lives behind the purpose-driven life. So in 2005, a survey of pastors, most pastors voted the purpose-driven church and the purpose-driven life was the most influential books upon their life. That is just hard to even comprehend how he became known for this. This, this is the thing that he, he, he figured it out. And next thing you know, that's what he became known for. In the meantime, his book on Bible study methods remains an obscurity. And it, it took me a long time to go, wait a minute. That's the Rick Warren? Like, wait, way back when I was a teenager, I was reading a book by Rick Warren and he became this guy. And I was like, I don't think I know these two people. But guess what? Nobody cares about the Bible study methods. I'm telling you, that's just, there's something I think so very ironic there. And it, it just serves as a picture. But there's a little bit of the background. We could go to the uh, his book, The Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church. Those books sold all kinds of copies, and there's no way to deny their impact and influence on the evangelical world. Now, we can sit back and criticize. I can criticize his methods. I can criticize his books. But let's be honest, again, from a human perspective, he figured it out, and the rest of us don't have a clue what we're doing. The rest of us are going to die in obscurity. There's no way to get around that. All right, now, I say all of that simply for this reason. I want you to understand why we're getting ready to do what we're going to do. We're going to go to Saddleback Church. We're going to, we're going to go, back till, go back in time to yesterday, right? A little over 24 hours ago. We're going to go visit Saddleback Church, and we're going to hear Rick Warren preach his final message. The beginning of a miracle, exclamation mark. The beginning of a miracle. That's the, the name of the sermon. Now, but we're, before we get to the sermon, we're going to do something here. We're going to jump to the praise and worship portion of the service. All right? This is the praise and worship por portion of the service, which is supposed to have something to do with worship. Now, I believe the highest point of worship in a, in a church service is the preaching of God's word because we're hearing from God. I think that's the highest point of worship. I know everyone thinks the worship is the singing. Worship is really the highest point is where I sit and listen and receive the word of God being preached. But people don't think that's worship because they don't get the feelings. They don't get the, the stage lighting and they don't dim the lights in the sanctuary and we don't all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But, but that's a whole different, a whole different point. We're going to go back, but I have to do this. We're going to go back and, and I'm just going to start the audio right in the middle of one of their praise and worship songs because something really crazy happens to me. Something really crazy happens here. Now, I know I'm hurting myself because now I'm going to have to try to fast forward and find out where the sermon starts. But I, when I was trying to go through the audio just to figure out where the sermon started, I heard something during the praise and worship and I was like, what is going on? What is this? Now, you may not see a problem with it, but I do. But here we go. We're going to go back. Now, 
the audio. I've got it as loud as I can get it. I don't know why churches out there post their stuff on YouTube and other places at such a low volume. I will never comprehend why. Check your audio levels, pastors and churches. Check your audio levels, all right? And how do you check it? Once you post something, go listen to it just using a phone or just a a laptop without any external speakers, without a Bluetooth speaker, just in those normal phone speakers, normal thing. And if it's not loud enough, then you've got to see what you can do to fix it, all right? So just, I got to throw that out there. I'd rather be a little too loud than, than not loud enough, okay? But there you go. All right, so here we go. Saddleback Church. Rick Warren's final sermon, his final service as lead pastor. Lots of discussion we can have about his replacement, but well, whenever his replacement preaches his first sermon, we'll try to make sure we uh, review that as well, just because Saddleback has been so influential. But here we go. It's going to just jump in right into the music. And because I'm not going to, I didn't try to go back it up to the beginning of the song, just in the middle. So to just to watch how the song progress, progresses and then wait to what you hear they throw in to the song. Please note, they're singing, Jesus conquered the grave. So this is supposed to be a song about Jesus, praising Jesus. All right, let's keep going. We can figure out a way to turn an audience into an army, to turn consumers into contributors, to turn spectators into participators. It will change the world. It's time to stop debating and start doing. It's time for the church to be known for love, not for legalism, for what we're for, not for what we're against. It's time for the church to be the church. And a song that's supposedly praising Jesus, they throw in right in the middle of it, Rick Warren. They throw in the words of Rick Warren preaching. In the middle of a sermon that's supposed to be praising, and a song that's supposed to be praising Jesus, does not does not anyone find that just like no, 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 no? That just kind of made my skin crawl. I was like, wait, wait, what? This is this in their praise and worship time, and in the middle of their praise and worship time, they throw in the words of Rick Warren talking about church. We need to turn the church into this, and we need to do this, and we need to. You know, he's preaching his. Uh, his philosophy of the purpose-driven church. And a song praising Jesus, you throw in Rick Warren preaching his philosophy of the purpose-driven church. You don't see a conflict there? Now, I know that I know that they probably had no intentions of it coming across that way, but that just felt weird to me. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. So here's a song praising Jesus. And then right after you say Jesus basically conquered the grave, boom, the next thing you hear is Rick Warren preaching his purpose-driven method, his purpose-driven philosophy. That is just bizarre to me. 
And then they go back talking about the glory of the risen king. How did, how did Rick Warren's words about the purpose driven church and what we need in the church? How did, how does that have anything to do with the glory of the risen king? How does it have any, that is the most bizarre. I know it's his last Sunday, but do the praise and worship song, then have some kind of musical interlude, right? Where you're, you're clearly done with that. You tell everyone to sit so they're not, you know, with their hands up or however they worship at, at Saddleback. And, and then, then say, we're going to have a little video tribute of, of, to Rick Warren and his ministry. Like you could find a way to put that in there, but I mean, to do it in the middle of a praise and worship song is utterly just no. And I know most people won't talk about this and most people will ignore that, but I couldn't ignore it. I couldn't ignore it. So you get the idea. I just wanted you to have the context. So I'm going to move this up just a little bit and see if we can get to where the sermon begins. (laughs) So someone just said, if if they do that song like our church does, you're going to hear that chorus about 20 more times before it's over. That is so true, man. Those praise and worship songs, they just say the same thing over and over and over. Repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. But it's not, I don't know. I don't know. We, we could get into a whole discussion about that, but that was that was pretty hilarious. Sorry. So I'm, I'm trying to get to where the sermon was. I should have marked it down the time. But when I was trying to find the sermon and I heard that, I was like, what in the world? You just put Rick Warren giving a, a, a his words on, you know, the purpose-driven church in the middle of a praise song about Jesus. I'm like, what is happening here? What is it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm going to be the only one bothered by that, but I'm just still perplexed. But this All right. Still their praise and worship time. Okay. Probably goes on for six months. All right. Here we go. All right, yeah, still their praise and worship, okay? Goes on for a good amount of time. Here we go. Let's try now. Okay, here we go. Rick Warren, I think, is making his way to the pulpit. Okay, so we're, we're getting to the end, and now Rick Warren's going to make his way to the pulpit. And when he does, it's going to be, yay! It's going to be applause. Now, I you can say if that's a good thing. You can say it's a bad thing. I know a lot of churches do that. I, I've talked about my frustration or kind of my... Some of my struggles with Hiles Anderson College. If you, I subscribe to their chapel services at the, at the Bible College there and their seminary. And whenever a speaker speaks, the crowd just goes, yeah, and everybody just loses their minds. And it just seems like, what are we, what are we applauding here? Are we, are we applauding a man? Or is like, I don't know what we're doing. I don't like that at all. Like, I don't like that at all. Um, I don't like that. I don't like that. And so I, I understand this is his final service. So, but is the final service, I mean, you've already now interrupted praise and worship to have the words of Rick Warren about the purpose-driven church. Now, before he even enters the pulpit, you're all going to start cheering. I don't know. I don't know. It just, how much, it's so easy, I think, within Christianity that we become man-centered 
instead of God-centered. And I say that towards my own self, not, not just, I'm not rebuking other people, right? I can become, I can make ministry about me. I can make a Christian podcast about me. I can be man-centered, right? And churches can become man-centered. And there can be, I think it's just, I mean, the celebrity culture, we could get all into that, but I, I don't know. You can, you can draw your own conclusion. I, I backed it up just a little bit. Have I told you lately that I love you? Now, and, he, and here, I, I know they're applauding, and I, I do feel for him, it's got to be emotional. I mean, I can't even wrap my mind around it. Um, I, I just know that when you've given your life to ministry, right, you, you're trying your best, like whether it's a podcast, whether it's uh, behind a pulpit, Whenever that comes to an end, even if, even if it's temporarily for your own stupidity, whatever the case may be, it is heartbreaking because you feel like you've given your life to that. Now, for him, he gets to walk away and he, I mean, he, he changed evangelical Christianity. He, he, I mean, pastors in 2005, his books were one of the most influential things upon their, li their life. He changed everything. I mean, there's no way to get around what he, he changed everything. Now, we could, we could follow a, we could create a timeline of all the different things that came into Christianity all, that kind of led up to, you know, Rick Warren's purpose-driven church. We could, we could go back to Willow Creek. I mean, there, there's so many things. We could follow all of that. But there's no, there's no denying that when he at least stands down, he, he knows he changed Christianity, whether for good or bad. In his mind, it'll be for good. Other people can debate it. But it's still emotional. So I still feel bad for him that it's got to be hard when you step in there for the last time. It's got to be, it's got to be difficult. Um, you know, I don't know. I know whenever my ministry ends, I don't know when it will be. Um, I know that it will be, it will be very devastating to me since I've given so much of my life to it. But I, but I will walk away knowing that I probably didn't accomplish much of anything. He at least walks away knowing he accomplished something. But the sad reality is Rick Warren may be remembered when we look back in church history, but most, but he'll be gone and Christianity is just going to move on. And it just demonstrates that we can never make it about us because we're such, we're, 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 we're so insignificant in it. Christianity is the thing that matters. The scriptures are the things that matter. That's what lasts. We don't. We're here. We're on the scene. We do what we can. Maybe we make a difference. Maybe we don't. But it, it's gone. So this is kind of an emotional thing. But this gets us now set up. He's in the pulpit. Rick Warren's final sermon. The review begins now. All right. Sit down. Sit down. You're so tired of applauding for me. I know. Well, as you know by now, 
uh, today is my last message to you as your senior pastor. For 43 years, it's been my privilege to love you. (laughs) Pray for you, serve you, encourage you. Stand by the graveside, stand by the bedsides, do the weddings, counsel for difficult times, encourage you, and teach you. And during these 43 years, uh, I've preached over 6,500 messages, sermons, and studies. But in this last farewell message, I decided to repeat and to re-preach the very first sermon I wrote and preached to start this church 43 years ago. All right. Now, a couple of things. 43 years of ministry. As much as we may disagree with Rick Warren's doctrine or theology or his methods, for the most part, it's been a scandal-free ministry. For the most part, there hasn't been great amounts of controversy. For the most part, he has lived a life that's pretty much above reproach, other than maybe his theology or doctrine. So there is much to celebrate here. He's given his life to ministry for 43 years. He's preached over, what he, I think he said, over 6,000 sermons and messages. That is an amazing thing. Now, we could ask, and, and, and to me, when I hear that, it's like, I always ask this question, of all the millions of messages preached and all of the sermons preached on a weekly basis, Does any of them make any difference? Does it change anything? I'm always asking that question because I'm always, whenever I drive to church and I drive past churches, I'm like, all these people go to church. We all preach a message and does anything really matter? So I'm always very jaded, but I think we have to at least say 43 years. He's done done a lot of things. Whether we agree with everything, there's a lot there that he's, I mean, there's a lot there that deserves at least some respect. And I, and, I, and I definitely want to make sure that any criticism I offer, it's measured by saying, I mean, he's done very well in that sense. All right. Now, he's going to go back and preach his first sermon. You, you, know, you know how I feel about that. Okay. I would never be able to preach my first sermon because I don't keep my sermons because I don't ever want to repeat anything. I don't ever want to preach the same sermon twice. Ever, under any circumstances. I don't care. We, when I started, when I preached through the Gospel of John, if I go through the Gospel of John now, it should not sound like, look like, and be anything like the first time I went through the Gospel of John. We went through 1 Corinthians. If I go through it again, never, it should not even, you wouldn't even think it's the same person. So I don't ever want to preach the same sermon in any way, shape, or form. So I, you know how I feel about that. But it's interesting. He's going to go back to his first sermon. And uh, it is kind of interesting. Um, uh, I'm not going to offer that criticism. Let's just see where it goes. One of our uh, purpose-driven values, we talk about it all the time, begin with the end in mind. That's what it means to be purpose-driven. Begin with the end in mind. Know where you're going. And from the very start, at the very first service of this church, 43 years ago, um, we announced what we knew God wanted us to do. I explained the DNA of what this church would be. There was, we hadn't even met yet. The the sermon was totally in faith. And the message you're about to hear uh, today 
illustrates this value of begin with the end in mind. And as I said, I, I preached it uh, on March 30th, 1980, in the little theater of Laguna Hills High School to about 50 people who showed up for a trial run dress rehearsal service. We did this service to prepare for the first public service, which was going to be the following week, Easter 1980. And as I looked out on this group of about 50, 60 people, uh, almost all of them were strangers. We didn't know each other. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. Uh, they didn't know each other. These were just 50, 60 people who had shown up in response to a letter that I had uh, written to the community. So as I preached this message, and nothing, Saddleback Church did not exist when I preached this message. I was defining the type of church we were going to be for the future to total strangers. And uh, many of those people had never even been in a church ever before. They just liked whatever I wrote in that letter, showed up, because over the next nine months I baptized 60 of them. So keep in mind as you hear this message that it's the very first sermon to the very first group of people who did not know each other, did not know me, I did not know them, and we had nothing, literally nothing. Everything I was saying was being said in faith. Now, in the first months of our new church, Saddleback Valley Community Church in 1980, one of the young couples that I had the privilege of leading to faith in Christ uh, were a couple named Dave and Jenny. And they gave to their lives to Christ, and they jumped in with both feet, and, and, and Dave was so grateful to, to be saved and to be in a church family and had given his life. He wanted to give something back to his church. He was a carpenter. So he decided, instead of me using a music stand every week, he would build me a pulpit. And today, I'm standing behind that pulpit that he built. Uh, he surprised me with it. In fact, one night, he shows up at my home in Laguna Niguel, knocks on the door about 9 o'clock at night. I open, and this thing is in the, in the, in the doorway. This is the pulpit I used for the first 15 years of Saddleback Church. When we didn't have a building, we used 79 different facilities. If you could figure out where we are this week, you get to come. And wherever Rick went, the, pen, the pulpit was sure to go. It followed him to school one day, school one day, school one day. But the pulpit went with me wherever it went. And we actually, at one point, put it on rollers because I pushed it to this campus when uh, 6,000 people marched from Tribuco Hills High School on one Sunday to this Lake Forest campus uh, to launch uh, our, our new home here. And uh, we retired this pulpit after 15 years on the day we opened this worship center. So it's a significant thing to... Good girl. <laughs> now, this week's going to be very, very different. Uh, after I pray... I'm going to teach, as I said, the first original message uh, to this church. And I'm going to preach it not like I'm speaking to you. I'm going to preach it as if I were speaking not to you, but to the original group of 50, 60 people 43 years ago. So to experience the full effect of this final message of Saddleback from me uh, is I need you to use your imagination. And I need you to imagine three things. First, 
I want you to imagine you know nothing about this church because it doesn't exist. There is no Saddleback Church when this message is shared. So you know nothing about it because it hadn't started. Second, I need you to imagine that you are sitting with 50 strangers that you don't know any of them in a Laguna Hills High School uh, and you may not even be a Christian yet. And number three, this is the biggest stretch of all, imagine that I'm 25 years old. <laughs> all right? Okay, now you'll be ready to put your mind in the mental thing for this message. Let's pray. Okay, a couple of things. So he wants you to imagine these three things. Let me just tell you, I apologize. that, that I mean, this is the audio. Uh, this, I mean, I do not know why they have it so low. It's driving me nuts. I keep going over to the Sermons 2.0 app trying to listen. It's not loud enough. I know it's not loud enough, but this is this is what I got. If I can find a different copy of it, I'll re-review the sermon, okay, and do it again. But, um, I mean, this is... This is the end of an era, the last sermon preached by Rick Warren, and someone obviously doesn't know how to record the sermon at a decent volume, okay, but but okay, there's got to be a copy somewhere of a louder volume. It's just so weird that it's so low. It just makes no sense, but okay. I mean, I mean, you can hear how loud I'm coming in, and I don't have my mic even anywhere close to too loud, um, and um, it's just, it's just, but that's, there's nothing I can do about it. It's nothing I can do about it. So uh, he, he's going to go back to the first sermon. He wants us to imagine basically 50 people, many, many of them not even Christians. So it's kind of odd that, I don't know, we'll, we'll hear the sermon he's going to preach to, I guess, mainly not non-Christians. And uh, he, he, he wants you to remember that he's much younger and he wants you to imagine all of this. He's going to pray and then we're going to get the, the original sermon as it was preached. And so here we go. Father, may you once again use these words that you gave me to start this church. To... There we go. I, 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 hmm. you, know, you know my issue. Hey, Lord, thank you for this sermon. The words you gave me. Now, I mean, I know we say things within Christianity without ever thinking of the theological implications, but you're just implying that your sermon is inspired by God, that it's basically scripture. Hey, you gave me these words. Well, is that not divine inspiration? Is that not divine inspiration? I mean, are you claiming, are you telling everyone this is the sermon that God, now he would, you could argue, he could argue, well, obviously God gave me the sermon because from this sermon, we went on to baptize all of these people within nine months and then look at the church and it grew and now we're at 20,000 people. Clearly I did something right. I just wish that my sermons were, I guess, I don't know, directly given to me by God because then no one could ever disagree with me. Oh, you know what? I know Christians, they still would disagree, okay? But in theory, they'd be disagreeing with God and not me, but okay. I understand we say that. We just need to think of the theological implications of what we're saying. If God gave you those words, then those words are divinely inspired. Put them in the Bible. Launch the next generation of Saddleback Church. You are a wonder-working God. And we trust you for the next generation and the next lap in our journey called Saddleback. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the very first service of Saddleback Valley Community Church. You are making history today. 
And as I look out on your faces, I realize that none of us know each other, but I'm filled with gratitude and I'm filled with joy and I'm filled with expectancy because today is the beginning of a miracle. And you are not here by accident. A thousand years before you were born, God knew that on this day, March 30th, 1980, you would be sitting in this Laguna Hills High School Theater witnessing the launch of a brand new church. I want you to know that even though I don't know your name, God does. And I began praying for you about nine months ago. And I believe that God wants to use you to impact Orange County, Southern California, and eventually the world in ways that you've never imagined. God wanted you here today for this very first service of Saddleback Valley Community Church. Now to launch this new place of worship, I chose a text from a very small book in the Bible called Zechariah. Here's the quick background. During Israel's... Oh, (laughs) my goodness. Okay, so for the launch of a new church, he took a text from the book of Zechariah. (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. I just feel, and just remember, this is the person who wrote the book on Bible study methods, Oh, boy. And he's going to offer the historical background. But here's my prediction. Prediction. I could be wrong. He's going to give us the historical background. Then he's going to rip it so far out of context that it's not even funny. I'm hoping I'm wrong. But here we go. War and captivity by the Babylon Empire. Uh, The temple in Jerusalem was totally destroyed. And after the Israelites were allowed to return home, Uh, God encouraged the governor of Judea to build a new place of worship. That's what uh, Zechariah is talking about. And I believe that God's instructions to those people over 2,500 years ago can apply to the launching of this new congregation today. So let me read it to you. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. It says this. This is God's word. You will succeed. Look at this. You will succeed, not in your own power, not in your own strength or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Nothing, not even a mountain, will stand in your way. Zerubbabel, who was the priest, is laying the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. So, do not, look at this, do not despise these small beginnings. For the eyes of the Lord rejoice to see this work begin. Now, I I want you to notice five facts. from. Okay, there's so many problems here. There is so many problems here. This is his final sermon, and this is the way he's going to go out. I I would hope that after all of these years, he would be better uh, equipped to handle the text in a more correct manner. But he was going to Zechariah chapter 4. He starts in verse, I think he says verse 6. Let's see. Uh, Where did he go here? Zechariah chapter 4. Um Verse six, then he answered and spake unto me saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, not to Rick Warren, but to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. 
Now, specifically, this has to be associated and understood in its historical context and what is going on. Verse 7, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. This seems to be saying it's not going to be your might. It's not going to be your power that you lay the foundations that the temple is rebuilt. It's going to be because of me. You can't rip that out of context and say, that's about your church. That's about my church. That's about you remodeling your home. That's about you building your house. No, this, oh man. Okay. And then verse eight, moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. Thou shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you for he, for who hath despised the day of small things for they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. The, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the earth. This is a specific promise to a specific individual for a specific purpose, which is the temple. This, this, oh boy. And this is just being ripped so far out of context. So he's going to want us to see five things. So what he's basically doing is he's saying what happened here in Zerubbabel with Zerubbabel in the book of Zechariah is not just a historical narrative. It is prescriptive of what, well, I guess all churches are to follow. I guess that's where he's going, or at least the church there in 1980 in Laguna Hills Theater, high school theater, wherever they are. All right, here we go. These verses. First, building a new place of worship can be done not by human strength, but only by God's power. It cannot be done by human power strength. We're going to need. Yes, it's very, it's, it's the same way Jeremiah 29 is used, right? Just rip it out of context. He's, here are promises given to people coming out of Babylonian captivity. Next thing you know is on the church sign and, you know, on the street in your city and, or it's quoted at a high school graduation and like, no, no, these kids are not coming out of Babylonian captivity. Stop quoting Jeremiah 29. But here we go. So, so now immediately he just starts applying this to, well, a building, building a place of worship, building a place of worship. I'm, I'm going to back that up just a little so that we hear that since I interrupted it. All right, here we go. By human strength, but only by God's power. It cannot be done by human power strength. We're going to need God's spirit to strengthen us in building a new house of worship. Number. All right, so building a house of worship cannot be done in human strength. It's got to be done through God's power and God's strength. Is that, is that, is that true? Is that true? It can't be done. So every house of worship is built by God's power and God's strength. Joel Olstein's church, God's power, God's strength. T.D. Jakes denying the Trinity. Is that God's power, God's strength? Large Catholic cathedrals, which completely deny the doctrine of justification by grace alone. Was that God's strength? I can think of thousands and thousands of churches, Mormon churches, Jehovah's Witnesses. I can go from all kinds of churches that teach completely something fraudulent. They're built they make money. They, there's lots of money coming in. I mean, look at the temple, the Mormon temple in Utah for crying out loud. So they can't be built or they can be built. So what do you mean they can't be built without human, with human strength? What, what do you mean? Number two, a solid foundation, he says, has to be laid. They're laying the foundation. And the size and the strength of the foundation is going to determine the size and strength of our church for decades to come. 
Number three, we are not to dismiss how small our beginning is. It says, don't despise small beginning. This small group here today, it's no indication of how large this church family is going to become. Number four, God is happy and he's rejoicing to see this work begin. He's smiling from heaven. And finally, how do you know God is smiling? How do you know God is happy? Now, just remember, this is, this is the sermon that started it all. And already, what are we seeing? We're seeing a historical narrative being turned into a prescriptive principle, a, a book of, of prescriptive principles for them to use. Uh, Scripture is being completely mishandled, and he's now making claims about, well, things can't be done, which clearly they can be. He's making claims about God that there's no way he knows this 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 demonstrates that Rick Warren's ministry, at least from a biblical perspective, from a human perspective, he was nothing but successful, amazing, influenced people. And I am very and, and he does. And let me make me very clear. Uh, make 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 it this very clear. He is he does deserve respect for being scandal free. I mean, he I mean, there, there's so many good things about what he did. But I'm just saying this is bad, 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 bad. Um uh, yes, and uh, s- someone says this is an old, uh, uh, this is an odd approach. Talking to them uh, like it was uh, the little first one, like yeah, it, he's talking to them like you know, hey, we're little, but it's going to be big. I, I guess it's this, it's a way of, I mean, we could try to take it apart from a psychological standpoint. What he's trying to do with the people, like basically, like you're in on the ground level, you're going to be a part of something big, and and God's going to do this, and all we got to do is rely on God and lay the right foundation, and then it's going to be amazing. So I, I guess that kind of gives people a purpose, uh, something to rally around, something to commit to. So I think from a psychological, encouraging leadership way, it's kind of the, 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 the I, I can kind of see what's trying to be done here from a purely human perspective. Not so much maybe from a biblical perspective, because I don't think Zechariah, Zechariah clearly has nothing to do with how we build our church, has nothing to do. Number five, God guarantees our success. If we rely on him and follow his instructions, he says, you will succeed. Now, you will succeed. He's taking words given to Zerubbabel, and now he says he just ripped them out of context and said, "You will succeed if." Now, of course, it's conditional if we obey, if we do. So I don't know. I don't know how much obedience we have to be, but I guess they. I guess at Saddleback Church they had the right amount of obedience. So here, so just think about what he's saying. Take it to its logical con- conclusion. Hey, little church in the middle of Ovalo, Texas. Okay, you're little. You're small. You know why you haven't succeeded? Because you haven't obeyed. You didn't do the right thing. Other pastors and small churches, sorry, your problem is you didn't obey. Your congregation didn't obey. I mean, who gets the blame? Is it the congregation or is it the pastor? What if the pastor is obedient, but the people aren't? What if the pastor is, is uh, the congregation is obedient, but the pastor is not? How does this work? And which, which, le- which rules do you have to follow to ensure success? And are you sure that a church can't be successful even if it's not numerically successful? Some of you might be thinking, should a church even be interested in success? So let me speak to that right up front on this first service. First, God doesn't sponsor flops. And God tells us that his church is, quote, the body of Christ. 
which means it's a body, not a business. It's an organism, not an organization. It is alive. And all living things grow. Growth is the evidence of life. If you're not growing, you're dying. Colossians 2.19 says this, under Christ's control, his whole body is nourished and held together. And it God doesn't sponsor flops. God doesn't sponsor flops. Nope. Nope. You've got to be growing. You've got to be growing. You've got to be growing. And clearly he connects that to numerical growth, numerical growth. So God, so if, if your church is not growing, it's a flop. So clearly God's not a part of it. And who's to blame? Pastors to blame. People are to blame. It's always got to be someone to blame. So if your church grows to be 500, but not 20,000, is that a flop? I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly where the number, I, I'm still looking in the Bible like, your church is a flop because you didn't have 10,000 people. I guess Jesus' ministry was a flop because how does that all end? Most of the people turn their back on him. They're screaming, crucify him. His disciples run off. I, was that a flop? I, I don't know. Well, no, no, look what happened on the day of Pentecost. I guess that's the way it works. I don't know. It grows as God wants it to grow. It is God's will for this church to grow. It is God's will that every church be healthy and growing. But second, Rick Warren knows God's will for every church. Rick Warren knows God's will for every church. That's a... That's starting off your ministry in a pretty arrogant way. <laughs> if you're asking about should a church want to be successful, let me define success. Success is not size. Success. Okay. Now he's not, he's saying it's not size. Okay. Now, now we can have maybe a little bit more agreement. If you're going to say success is not size, then we, okay. All right. Let, let's see how he describes it then. It's changed lives. You'll hear me say that a thousand times in the years ahead. Success has changed lives. We will focus on health, not growth, because if you're healthy, growth is automatic. I don't have to command my kids to grow. They grow if they're healthy. Now, you may have heard people say, well, God has not called us to be successful. He's only called us to be faithful. And I'd say, you haven't read your Bible because it's only half correct. God has called us to be both faithful and fruitful. Okay, now, this kind of a little game here, right? Hey, hey, success doesn't mean growth, but if you're healthy, you will grow. <laughs> so, so your, your success is your spiritual health, but if you're spiritually healthy, boom, then you'll grow. So if you don't grow, someone's not spiritually healthy. It's either the congregation or it's the pastor. So in a roundabout way, he's found a way to make it about growth without making it about growth. Hey guys, it's not growth. But if you're healthy, you'll grow. So if you're not growing, it's because you're not healthy. <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty clever. That's pretty clever. I think it's diabolical and messed up, but it is pretty clever. Hey, we're not about growth. We're about health. And if you're healthy, then you'll grow. See, it's not about growth. <laughs> faithful and successful. The Bible term for success is fruitfulness. And repeatedly throughout his ministry, Jesus says that he expects us to be fruitful, to bear fruit, not be merely faithful. Faithfulness is not enough. 
God expects fruitfulness. So we're never going to apologize for expecting to be fruitful and successful as a church family. In fact, Jesus says this in John 15, verses 8 and 16. You bring glory to my Father. You want to bring glory to Father? Here's how you do it. You bring glory to my Father, and you show you're my disciples. You want to prove you're really a follower of Christ? You show you're my disciples by bearing much fruit. Notice that word, much fruit. God wants a big family. He says, I chose you, and I've called you to bear. See, much fruit, big family. Much fruit means numerical growth. He's, a so, he's, he's correlating much grow, much spiritual, much spiritual fruit with growth, with numerical growth. He's literally saying what he, he says he's not saying that. And then he's literally going back and saying what he said he's not. We're not going to focus on numerical growth. It's not size, but if your spirit, but God, God wants you to bear spiritual fruit and spiritual fruit means, well, numerical growth. <laughs> fruit, fruit that will last. And I want you to notice from that verse, Jesus says, God expects me and he expects you and he expects this church to bear much fruit. So that's what we're going to believe God for. And even more important is that God promises and God guarantees your fruitfulness in life if you follow certain instructions. So today, in this very first message, I want to explain specifically five things we're going to do what we're going to do in order to ensure the fruitfulness of our lives and this church for the years ahead. All right, so if you want a fruitful church, if you want a fruitful life, got to follow five rules. Got to follow five rules, right? It's always five. It's always something you got to do, right? It's never based on Christ. This is all about what we do, what we do, what we do, what we do. All right. What are the five rules? Let's go. I know we're already over an hour, but hey, I mean, we're, 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 we're marking the end of an era with Rick Warren's final sermon. So I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, we're just going to go until we're done. So I apologize if it goes too long. If you don't like that, I'm sorry, but hey, that, that's, that's the way we're going to go. Well, let's finish this. Here we go. And I've titled this, The Five Reasons This Church is Guaranteed to succeed. Now, as you decide today on whether or not this church is for you in this very first service, I want to give you our biblical blueprint for a fruitful or successful church family. And I hope at the end, you're going to want to join us because it's going to be quite an adventure. Number one, the first reason this church is guaranteed to succeed is this. Because doing God's word will be our foundation. Doing God's word will be our foundation. The only legitimate foundation for any church is the Bible, God's word. And building on any other foundation is going to guarantee failure. But God makes many, many promises about his word. Here's one of them, Isaiah 55, 11. He says this, my word comes out of my mouth and it will not fail. It will not fail to do, that's called success. It will not fail to do what I intend for it to do. It will accomplish everything that I desire. And okay, now again, he's just going to Isaiah. What, what specifically was God referring to there? And, and, and what, what exactly is he referring to in, in this particular discussion? 
it will succeed in the purpose for which I sent it. Yeah, it will succeed in the purpose for he, what he sent it for. First of all, we have to decide what was the purpose of the word there in Isaiah that he is referring to. What was, what was the purpose of the word there? I mean, this is, this, I mean, once again, this just demonstrates that Rick Warren was going to build a ministry on a very, 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 very flimsy foundation and how the scriptures were handled, how the scriptures were explained and exegeted. I mean, he, he started from his very first sermon showing that Handling the scriptures in any meaningful way was by no man, by no means even anywhere close to a goal. God promises that anything built on his word is going to succeed. He says it will not fail. And friends, I trust this book. Now, let me go a little bit further on this. Every true church believes God's word, teaches God's word, studies God's word, even memorizes God's word. But what's going to be different about Saddleback Valley Community Church is that we're going to focus on putting God's word into practice. We're going to do God's word, not simply study it, not simply teach it, not simply quote it, not simply memorize it. We're going to focus on doing God's word in this church, not just studying. That's a little bit different. You see, in the Great Commission, the last instructions that Jesus gave before returning back to heaven, he said this, teach them to do everything I have commanded you. Not teach them to know, not teach them to study, not teach them to remember. He says, teach them to do. We are to be doers of the word. We are to do it. If you're looking, I'll just be honest with you in this first service. If you're looking for church where all that's required is that you just come and sit, and listen to nice Bible studies every week? Friends, this isn't the church for you because we're not just going to study the word, we're going to do it. The Bible was not given to increase our knowledge. The Bible was given to change our lives. Sadly, a, a lot of churches just keep people busy studying the word of God, one study after another, thinking that's all that God expects. But they never really do it. They don't do anything in the community. They don't do anything around the world. <laughs> a lot of churches, man, they just have their people wasting their time studying the Bible. We're not gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna not waste our time just studying. We're gonna get you doing it. Now, again, there's, a, are we going to do it perfectly? Are, are you going to explain that we're going to fall short of doing it perfectly? That no one can do it perfectly? Now, we all should long to apply and put into practice. I'm not denying that. It's just interesting that he's almost diminishing Bible study for Bible practice. Hey, not Bible study, but Bible practice. But can you practice the Bible if you don't know the Bible? Now, I, he's obviously, I mean, look, the way he's handling scripture right here is already demonstrating that people are not going to know the scriptures because this is a sermon on Zechariah, which he's literally obliterated and not even bothered to even handle anywhere close to what it was actually about. They don't make a difference. They're just studying, studying, studying. James chapter one, verse 25 says this. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves by just listening to the word. In other words, I come to service after service. I listen. I think I'm growing. And he says, no, if you keep looking, it says, do what it says. Do what it says. 
if you keep looking steadily into God's word that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and you don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you in all you do. If you do what it says, okay, all right, let's put it into practice, Rick Warren. This is great. This is your first sermon that you preached. All right, and you're ending an error. So you're going to end the error by telling everyone, just do what the Bible says to do. We've got 2,000 years of church history. 2,000 years. Has anybody pulled that off? Has anybody, does anybody do what the word of God says? Let's just try a couple of things. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, no one does that. Be in first Peter, be ye holy as I am holy. Does anyone do that? Oh, nope, no one does that. Meditate on God's word day and night. Does anyone do that? No. Hide God's word in your heart. Most people believe that refers to scripture memory. Does anyone do that on any regular consistent basis? No. Study to yourself approved. How does people do in their actual study of God's word? Pray without ceasing. I can love your neighbor. Turn the other cheek. I can go on and on. Blessed is he who has a pure heart. I can go on and on and on and on and on. I can give you one command after another command after another command after another command that you will not do that you will fall short. So you've got to balance it out somehow. Yes, we are called to obey the scriptures by all means, but we have to realize it's not this simple, like we're just going to do it. You're going to do it. We're going to do it. And based on our doing, then God will bless us. If we do it, then we're not going to do it. Like, let's, you just have to start off. We're called to obey the scriptures, but no one is going to do it anywhere close to perfect. I don't know why we can't acknowledge that. Talking about why we want to succeed and why God has guaranteed it. He says we're going to do the word of God. God's blessing comes from doing what God says to do, not merely listening to Bible messages. God's blessing comes from doing. God's blessing comes from doing. I don't know. I don't know the Bible very well. Um, because I don't know much about the Bible, but I do know this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, I'm blessed because I'm in Christ. I'm not going to say that there can't be blessing that comes from obeying, but I already have all spiritual blessings in Christ. That is because of my position, not because of my doing. Let me give you an example. Imagine if I said I wanted to lose weight. And to show how serious I was about losing weight, I go out and I buy a book on weight loss. And every day, I faithfully sit down in my lazy boy chair, and I put my feet up to read and study another chapter on weight loss. And I find it so inspiring that I can't wait to get back for another session. Now, of course, I get my can of Coke, and my chips and dip uh, while I'm reading, and, and maybe a candy bar in case I'm really hungry. And every day I faithfully study that weight loss book. And I really enjoy it. I enjoy reading it and studying it. And I actually underline and highlight my favorite passages that inspire me in that weight loss book, and, and maybe even memorize a few sentences. But is that going to make me any more healthy? Is it going to change my life? Is it going to transform me? No. Wow, that is, he's comparing a weight loss book to the Word of God. You're saying the Word of God 
studying it doesn't transform you? You're saying studying it doesn't change you? In other words, you can study all day. It doesn't change you or transform you until you do something. Well, isn't the study of God's word supposed to be doing something? Isn't that, isn't it as a newborn babe desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby? Is it the study of God's word that convicts the study of God's word that is sharper than any two-edged sword and it divides asunder and, and it reveals our motives and it reveals what's inside? Isn't the word of God that transforms us? Isn't it the word of God that, I mean, I don't know how you can say, He's comparing it like you just keep studying the Bible and you're not doing it. You, you don't get changed until you do something. So, well, then why even study? Let's just forgo the study and just do. A lot of church members deceive themselves the same way. They think that simply going to church, listening to the word of God means they're growing. They are not. At this church, we're going to focus on applying God's word to our lives, actually doing it. That's why if you watch in the, in the uh, days ahead, you'll notice that I put a verb in every point of my message. Why? So that on Monday, you can practice what you heard on Sunday, that you can be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. And this is going to be different than a lot of other preachers. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 says this. Think about this book. It's God's word. Think about this book day and night so that you learn to do everything written in it you get in the message. yeah joshua gave those words to whom hey do everything in god's word well, i mean let come on rick warren i mean if you're gonna if you're gonna be the you know you change christianity this is your opportunity let tell me what happened joshua preached that to israel do god's word obey god's word do it and you will succeed how did that work out How'd that work out? Come on, come on, tell me. Come on, come on, tell me, Rick Warren. How did that work out? Are, are you going to let everyone know the rest of the story? How did it work out? They go into the land, and what happens? Boom, boom, rebellion, rebellion, sin, sin, idolatry, idolatry, this, this, sexual sin, this, boom, boom. I mean, I mean, come on. They, they so disobeyed that the entire kingdom splits, that there's captivity, there's the destruction of the temple. Come on, tell me how well that worked out. So what, I I love this. He quotes Joshua and it says, that's that's what we're to do. Well, wait a minute. How did it work out for Israel? How did it work out for any Christian in church in 2000 years of church history? You can stand before any congregation and say, do God's word, obey God's word. And there's still going to be disobedience and there's still going to be failure because that is the reality of sin. I love how preachers love Joshua to quote that, but they don't tell everyone the story. He says, then you will prosper and you will succeed in whatever you do. Why is this church going to succeed? Because we're going to do the word of God. Now, in the years ahead, you're going to hear me say this many, many times. You only believe the parts of the Bible you actually do. Do you believe in tithing? Yeah. Do you do it? No, then you don't believe it. Wow, you only believe the parts of the Bible you actually do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me confess something to you. I obviously believe very little of the Bible because I do very little of it. (laughs) Right? So I guess I'm just going to call it a day. And that's the end. You only believe the parts you do. Well, 
You look at all the things you don't do. I'll just start right there. Be holy as God is holy. Well, I have never been as holy as God is holy. Never will be as holy as God is holy. So therefore, I guess I don't believe that. I, I can just continue on, meditate on God's word day and night. I don't think I've ever meditated on God's word day and night. I don't think I've even come close. Pray without ceasing, cannot say that. I can just go on scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. Clearly, I don't believe any of it. Do you believe in witnessing? Yeah. Do you do it? No, then you don't believe it. Do you believe in forgiving your enemies? Yeah. Do you do it? No, then you don't believe it. You only believe the parts that you actually do. You know, at the conclusion of Jesus' teaching, Whenever he was teaching, he would often say, now, go and do likewise. Every one of Jesus' sermons were aimed for an action. So will mine at the Saddleback Valley Community Church. Jesus made this promise in John 13, 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You don't get blessed by knowing the word of God. You get blessed by doing the word of God. So the very first. You don't get blessed by knowing God's word, only by doing it. So there's no blessing from just knowing it. There's no blessing. How do you justify that view scripturally? reason This church is going to succeed. Looking at all those verses we just looked at is because doing God's word will be our foundation. Not just hearing it, not just knowing it, not just studying it, doing it. Now, here's the second reason we are guaranteed to succeed as a church. Because fulfilling God's purposes will be our plan. Doing God's word will be our foundation. Fulfilling God's purposes will be our plan. We're not going to grow this church on our plans. We're going to structure everything around God's purposes. Proverbs 19.21 says this, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that will prevail. We all have all kinds of plans, but he said it's only the Lord's purposes that prevail. To prevail means to succeed. It means to triumph uh, over obstacles. It means uh, to be victorious over barriers. It means to be successful. The word says that we will prosper and we will succeed when we do God's purposes. My life verse is to follow David's example because I think it's the, a definition of real success. Acts 13, 36 says this. David served God's purpose in his generation. That is so simple and that is so clear. To me, that's the definition of a successful life. He did that which never changes, served God's purpose. But he, he did it in a world that was constantly changing in his generation. He did the eternal in a contemporary way, in a relevant way. He did the timeless in a timely way. He served God's purpose in his generation. Then he died. Who wants to stay around here afterwards? That's what our church is going to do. And it's the second reason we're guaranteed to succeed, because God's purposes are going to be our plan. Now, I don't have time in this first message to explain God's five purposes to you. I'm going to do that in future messages. But the first church modeled God's five purposes in Acts 2. Jesus reports on how he did the five purposes with his disciples in John 17. And Paul explains them in Ephesians 4. But they're best summarized, the five purposes of God, in the five verbs of the great commandment, 
and the great commission of Jesus. If you don't get anything else, you just get the great commandment, great commission, you're going you're gonna to be a great Christian. So here's the motto of this brand new church as we announced it on our very first Sunday. A great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission will grow a great church. A great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission will grow a great church. I'm gonna unpack that in detail in the weeks and months ahead. But this church is gonna succeed. It's guaranteed to succeed because doing God's will will be our foundation and fulfilling God's purposes will be our plan. And number three, because trusting God's promises will be our confidence. Trusting God's promises will be our confidence. You know, one of the most incredible, amazing, mind-shattering statements of Jesus is in John chapter 14. And I'll be honest with you, friends, it's hard to grasp and comprehend what Jesus is saying here. It's literally mind-blowing. Because in John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, What's mind-blowing is you go from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture, no no even attempt to exegete it, put it in any, any context, or do anything with it. That's what's mind-blowing. And I just love the fact that we're going to be a church committed to the great commandment. Yeah, the great commandment to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to fall short of that about 50 billion times because no one does that. But I guess we're not going to talk about it's all like, basically his sermon is, you obey everything and we will be blessed. You obey everything and you will be successful, meaning that he believes theologically that you can obey everything, which seems to call into question, is he, well, semi-Pelagian? Pelagian, I mean, I mean clearly, they're, they're, or does he believe in the eradication of the old nature? Something is here, but I, we, well, we just, I'm going to try to let him finish. All right, here we go. Jesus says this. I tell you the truth. In other words, Jesus said, I'm not putting you on. This is not an exaggeration. I tell you the truth, Jesus says. Anybody who trusts in me will be able to do even greater works than what I've done. Hello? We'll be able to do even greater works than what I've done because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name, that's prayer, so that I, the Son, may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, when I first read that verse, I think, how in the world could anybody possibly do greater works than Here's a novel idea. Maybe your first thought should be, hmm, is that promise directly to the disciples, or is that promise applicable to us? Maybe that's a good place to start. I don't know. In basic Bible study methods, you know, the methods you taught back in the 1970s, like, like the very Bible study, wouldn't that be a very, like, wait a minute, who's he talking to? Who, what uh, did, was those, was this promise given directly to them? But, but I don't know. What, what do I know? Jesus. What was he thinking? What was he thinking? He was thinking about the power of prayer. You see, when Jesus was here on earth, in his physical body, he was limited to one place at one time. He could only be in one place at one time because he was in a physical body. But now in his spiritual body, the church, Jesus can do miracles and transform lives in a million places at the same time. That's the greater works. 
He says, because you're going to be able to pray and ask. That's why God challenges us to think bigger and dream greater and risk more in faith than we could ever possibly imagine. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, challenges us here on this first day of this brand new church, challenges us with a vision-expanding fact. Here's what Ephesians 3.20 says. God, by his mighty power at work within us, is able to do far more than we would ever dare to ask or even dream of, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, our desires, our thoughts, our hopes. I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty big dreamer. God says, Rick, think of the biggest thing you could ever dream or hope or ask or imagine, and I can top that. What Paul is saying here in this verse is, let the size of your God determine the size of your goal. Don't base your vision on what you think you can do. Base it on how big you think God is and imagine what he can do. We're going to go for God's vision. So today, in front of this very small group of people who we don't even know each other yet, I'm going to go way out on a limb, and I'm going to state in faith a vision that God has given to me. It's a vision that as I've prayed. Oh, here we go. Now God's given him a vision. So we got, we got, we got so many issues with this, but I'm just going to try to let you finish because this is the sermon that brings the Rick Warren era to an end. So we're going to let it finish. There's so much here to take apart, but it's taking forever. So, I mean, you know how I feel about this. This is this whole idea, but just, I just want you to think about that. So, so don't let the, let, let the size of God, let the power of God determine basically your dream and your goals, right? That's what you're determining. Well, Okay, so you're saying that because God's ability to raise the dead, do this, or I can just do anything and God's going to do that? I mean, it, it, no one ever really, really, God has all of this power, but then look around life and you don't see God intervening with that power, doing this or doing that or doing this. It, it's so like, it, it almost tries to deny reality. And I have so many issues the way Christianity handles things, but all right, here we go. So now here's the vision God supposedly gave him. Prepared over the past year for this church, God gave me this dream, and I wrote it all down. You know, everything that exists in the world starts with a dream. Nothing happens until somebody starts dreaming. So here's the dream that God has given me that caused me to move here 12 weeks ago to Southern California to start this church family. Let me paint you a picture, a vision of Saddleback Church in the future. It is a dream of a place where the hurting, the hopeless, the discouraged, the depressed, the frustrated, and the confused will find love, acceptance, healing, hope, forgiveness, guidance, encouragement, and support. It is a dream of sharing the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ with hundreds of thousands of residents in South Orange County. It is a dream of welcoming 20,000, yeah, I said it, 20,000 members into the fellowship of this church family, loving, learning, laughing, and living in harmony together, modeling God's love to the world. It is a dream of growing people to spiritual maturity and their full potential 
through the discipleship of Bible studies and small groups and retreats and seminars and tools to help them grow in Christ-likeness and fulfill the purpose of their lives. It is a dream of equipping every member for their own ministry through our church by helping them discover their gifts and talents that God gave them. It is a dream of sending out our members by the thousands on mission to every continent and empowering every member for their personal life mission in the world. It is a dream of training church leaders and missionaries all around the world. And it is the dream of starting at least one new daughter church every year of this church's existence. It is a dream of at least 50 acres of land one day on which we will build a large regional church campus with beautiful yet efficient facilities, including a worship center seating thousands, a ministry center that provides a space for counseling and prayer and all of our ministries to the community, classrooms for Bible studies, training and outdoor recreation areas, and all of these facilities will be designed to minister to the total person, spiritually, emotionally, physically, socially, and they will be set in a natural park environment with inspiring garden landscapes that refresh the soul, including beautiful flowers and green lawns and trees and picnic areas and sparkling fountains and pools for baptizing. We want people to feel relaxed when they come to our church. Now today, I stand before you and I state in confident assurance that all of these dreams will be realized. Now, when you look at everything he supposedly said on that first sermon, and you look at everything that happened, see, from a human perspective, how are you going to argue that his dream wasn't from God? How are you going to argue that it wasn't from God? God, he ended up with 20,000 people. He ended up with this huge campus with all of those things that he described. That's Saddleback. It all came true. So in his mind, clearly it's from God and there would be no arguing against it. No matter how bad the doctrine is, no matter how twisting of the scripture is it. So then that raises some massive theological questions. Wait a minute. So he had this dream. All of this happened. Clearly, the scriptures are not handled anywhere close to right. Clearly, they're not exegeted right. Clearly, there's no hermeneutical principles. So then, is that the way you should do church? Should we throw out all of these emphasis? Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the way you do church. Maybe Rick Warren got it right. From a human perspective, you can't argue against it because he did all of that. But I could look at just because you got all of that, does that mean it's from God? Look at Joe Olstein's church. Is that the way you should do church? Look at T.D. Jakes. Is that the way you should do church? Or does this demonstrate something else? That church, for the most part, it's earthly success, it's numbers, it's growth, has so very little to do with God and scripture, and it has so much to do with human dedication, with money, with ingenuity, with plans, with methods, with schemes, with it, that so much of what we see in the church has really nothing to do with God and nothing to do with scripture. Because either you have to say what, what Rick Warren got the dream, supposedly from God, and it all came place, so therefore it was God and that God agrees with purpose-driven church, agrees with that entire, agrees with this kind of preaching, 
Or you have to say, no, 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 no. What that demonstrates is you had a dream and you made it happen through your own leadership skills, ingenuity, and you came up and you had enough money, you had enough people supporting it, and with enough money, you can accomplish a lot. Which is it? Why? Because they're inspired by God and they're for his glory. Now, you need to hear me say this clearly. My confidence is not in myself. Not at all. It's in the promises that God makes to us in this book if we follow his instructions. So when people say, who do you think you are? We have to say, it's the wrong question. What matters is not who we think we are. What matters is who do we think God is? And 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 explains how I feel about this. We are confident of all of this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we can do anything of lasting value by ourselves. Our only power and our only success comes from God. So let me review. This church is guaranteed to succeed because doing God's word will be our foundation. Fulfilling God's purposes will be our plan. Trusting God's promises will be our confidence. And number four, because depending on God's spirit will be our strength. We are going to stay totally dependent on God for all this to happen. Now, in the Bible, the word for total dependence on God, you know what it's called? Humility. Humility. Humility may be one of the most misunderstood words today. Humility is not demeaning yourself or belittling your gifts or pretending you're not talented at something. In fact, that could just be fishing for compliments, and that's false humility, which is a sin. Humility is not denying your strengths. Humility is being honest about your weaknesses. And humility is being totally... Yes, someone just said, meanwhile, the gospel, actually good news, doesn't appear to be anywhere to be seen. It it doesn't. I understand the purpose of this sermon was to let everyone know the purpose of the church and to lay out the the foundation. I understand that. To me, though, the one thing you would want to at least lay down is how we're going to handle the preaching of God's word. And clearly, he used Zechariah, he obliterated it, and he's just quoted scriptures out of context. So he's at least demonstrated to me that the church was built on shaky grounds from a scriptural standpoint. But yeah, there's no God. But I I guess I'm trying to wrap my mind around that it's absolutely, truly amazing. I will just say from a human perspective, he preached a sermon in front of 50 people. And he basically said, we're going to have a campus of what, 50 acres and 20,000 people. And and in the way he described the campus, if he said those words that way, and I have no reason to, to argue against it. I mean, I don't know if there's audio of it, but it all came to pass exactly as he said. I mean, you got to you got to process either that demonstrates so much of the church is just man-made human success and it has nothing to do with God or that it was all God. And if it was all God, then we should all follow Rick Warren's method. It's it's so like that. That to me is where this sermon is leading me to a massive conflict with that. Like, what do we do with that? 100 percent 
dependent upon God. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Anytime I am prideful, and anytime I think that I'm self-sufficient without God, that I don't need God's help, at that moment, God says, I'm on the opposite side of God, and I'm going to lose that battle every time, guaranteed to lose it, because your arms and my arms are too short to box with God. Every time I'm prideful, God is going to oppose me. But every time I live by faith, in total dependence on God, God, you've got to do this, then God gives us his grace. And when I get God's grace, then God can do so much more than I ever think or imagine or dream of or risk. Did you notice in that verse it says, God gives grace to the humble? What is grace? Well, grace is when God gives you what you need, not what you deserve. Literally, every good thing in our lives comes from God's grace. It's all of God's grace. Grace is the fact that God already knows every stupid mistake I'm going to make in life. And as pastor of this church, and he still chose me. And grace is the fact that God knows every mistake you're going to make in your life, but he still wants to use you too. This church is going to be built by flawed, imperfect people. That's grace. Here's another promise of God. 1 Peter 5, 6. If you humble yourself under God's mighty power, he will lift you up in his own good time. We're responsible for the depth of our ministry. God is responsible for the breadth of it. And over and over and over and over and over in Scripture, our loving Heavenly Father says he wants to bless us if we'll just trust him instead of trusting ourselves, instead of trusting our feelings, instead of trusting what other people in society and culture tells us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a great example of true humility and humble dependence. It says this, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. In everything you do, put him first. And he'll direct you and crown your efforts with success. That's why this church is going to succeed. Because we're going to do what that verse just says. You know, we typically think that you have to be strong for God to use you or to bless you. You have to be really strong, then God can use you. But actually, God uses our weaknesses as much as he uses our strengths. Your weaknesses are part of God's plan for your life too. They can bring honor to God too. And throughout history, God has always used weak people. Just so weird. Earlier, it's like, we are, we'll get blessed if we obey the scripture. Now it's, we're flawed and we're weak. <laughs> And God's going to use your weakness and somehow use your flaws. Well, wait a minute. If I have to obey, then there's no room for flaws and weakness. I I don't understand. Okay. Physically weak, emotionally weak, mentally weak, spiritually weak. God has always used people, but they were humbly dependent on God. You see, if God only used strong people, a lot of us would get left out. And if God only used perfect people, nothing would get done in the world because there are no perfect people. This church is going to be built by ordinary people with ordinary weaknesses. And what's going to matter 
is not our strengths and weaknesses, but our attitude of humbly depending on God for strength. Another promise that I've been holding on to for months is this one here. I love this. Job chapter 8, verse 5 to 7. It says this. If you look to God for help and you seek his favor and you keep yourself pure and you live with integrity, God will rouse himself on your behalf. And though you started with little, look around, you'll end up with much. If ever we needed a verse to start us out, though you started with little, you'll end up with much. That's a promise of God I'm claiming for Saddleback Church. As you look around today, we're starting with not much. We don't even know each other yet. But you and about 50 other people took a gamble to show up at a new church. And I honor you for being a risk taker because that's what it's going to take to build this church. It's what pioneers do. They take risks in faith. They don't do the safe thing. Safe people didn't show up at this service. So I honor you. Now, I imagine some of you are probably wondering, Rick, how long are you willing to stay here as pastor? It's a legitimate question when I'm challenging you to sign up. So I want to publicly announce this at our first service of Saddleback Church. God willing, and by his grace, I publicly commit to you, to giving the next 40 years of my life to reaching and growing the people of this church family. Now, I know it's not going to be easy. Nothing great is ever accomplished without opposition, without barriers, without criticism, without difficulties. I'm counting on these to be there. But Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is a promise that we're going to build this church on together. It says this, I am confident of this, that he who began this good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That's what we're counting on, the promises of God. So let's review. This church is guaranteed to succeed for five reasons, according to God's word. Because doing God's word is gonna be our foundation. We're not just gonna study it. We're gonna apply it in our lives. Fulfilling God's purposes will be our plan. We're gonna be built on the purposes of God. Trusting God's promises will be our confidence. We don't put confidence in ourselves. Depending on God's spirit will be our strength. And finally, number five, this church is guaranteed to succeed because loving God and people will be our attraction. Loving God and loving people will be our attraction. You know, as I study scripture, the Bible tells us that everywhere Jesus went, he attracted large crowds, not little crowds, big crowds. Those crowds grew so big, they were called in the Bible multitudes. What attracted so many people to Jesus? And how does a Christ-like ministry today attract crowds? What attracted people to Jesus? Well, three things. He met their needs. Just lost internet connection. We may have just lost internet connection. Okay, I think we're back. All right, 
Hopefully we didn't lose anything. Hopefully we didn't lose anything. Okay. Hopefully we're okay. Hopefully we're okay. All right. So we'll back up that audio just a little bit. We'll back that audio up just a little bit. We're trying to finish this. I know it's going long, but we're trying to finish this. But we, okay, good. Everybody says they can hear me. Okay. My, my computer was saying that we were reconnecting to the internet. Okay, here we go. I backed it up. Let's finish it. Apply it in our lives. Fulfilling God's purposes will be our plan. We're going to be built on the purposes of God. Trusting God's promises will be our confidence. We don't put confidence in ourselves. Depending on God's spirit will be our strength. And finally, number five, this church is guaranteed to succeed because loving God and people will be our attraction. Loving God and loving people will be our attraction. You know, as I study scripture, the Bible. I just, I just love like on one hand, we're flawed people. We're not going to do everything. But the other thing, hey, we're guaranteed to succeed because we're going to love God and love people. But you're not going to do that anywhere close to the way you, you should. So I, it, Christians always do this. Like on one hand, you can do it. On the other hand, you won't do it, but you can do it, but you won't do it. Like, I don't know which it is sometimes. Tells us that everywhere Jesus went, he attracted large crowds, not little crowds, big crowds. Those crowds grew so big, they were called in the Bible multitudes. What attracted so many? And then those multitudes walked away from him. Okay. Then those multitudes, hey, Jesus attracted large crowds who then said, peace out. Oh, yeah. Crucify him. Crucify. I, I guess that part of the story gets forgotten. Many people to Jesus. And how does a Christ-like ministry today attract crowds? What attracted people to Jesus? Well, three things. He met their needs, physical, emotional, spiritual. Number two, he taught them in practical and interesting ways. The Bible says they were fascinated by how he taught. They said nobody taught like this guy before. But most important of all, Jesus loved them. Love is what attracts. Growing churches love and loving churches grow. You know, for the past 12 weeks, I've been doing door to, I've been just going door to door in Southern Orange County, just talking to people, talking to people in this area about their lives. And you know what I discovered? That behind the doors of all these beautiful homes, there are a lot of lonely people. People are looking for love, just all in the wrong places. But if we as a church family genuinely love people, we'd have to lock the doors to keep people out. We want this church to be famous for its love, not anything else. I want people to say, that's the church where you go if you need love. They love you there. God repeatedly tells us over and over that love is the most important ingredient for the success of anything. Look at these verses. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, everything you do must be done with love. That's pretty clear, everything. Colossians 3, 14, love is more important than anything else. Pretty clear. Ephesians 5, 2, be full of love for people, for others, following the example of Christ who loved you and gave himself as a sacrifice to take away your sins. You know, friends, I've learned that you can fake love for a short time, but you can't fake it for long term. People figure out pretty soon, pretty quickly, if you really love them or not. One of the reasons love is so important is because it is the key to endurance. 
If you're not doing what you do out of love, you're not going to last at it. Love keeps you going when you feel like giving up. And there will be many hard spots in the years ahead for this church. But 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8 says this, love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful. Love endures through every circumstance. And love never fails. In other words, if you love, you're going to be a success. Love never fails. Notice that God says that if what you are attempting is done in love, it cannot fail. So regardless of the results, if what you're doing is being done out of love, you are already a success because love never fails. It was love that motivated Kay and me to move here 12 weeks ago to start this church. It was love that our little group of 15 people hand-addressed and hand-stamped 16,000 letters that we mailed out to start on Easter Sunday next week. It has been love that caused us to use our personal credit cards to finance this whole thing. All the preparations for today, the advertising, the building rental, the nursery equipment, and everything else, we put it on our credit cards. We're not doing this for ourselves. It's because we love Jesus. And we love people. Sure, sure, a good way to build yourself up. Okay, we did this. We did this. We put it on our credit cards because we love people. Yeah, so... (laughs) already you see a little hint of it. I'm not saying Rick Warren is constantly guilty of this, but I'm saying it's really starting to become about him and a kind of a roundabout way. It's becoming about him. You know, years ago I heard a story about the famous Christian Bishop Fulton Sheen and Bishop Sheen was visiting the Catholic Bishop or the Christian Bishop. Did he say Christian or Catholic? It has been love that caused us to use our personal credit cards to finance this whole thing. All the preparations for today, the advertising, the building rental, the nursery equipment, and everything else, we put it on our credit cards. We're not doing this for ourselves. It's because we love Jesus. And we love people. You know, years ago, I heard a story about the famous Christian bishop, Fulton Sheen. (laughs) Okay, I got to make sure I've got the right bishop. I got to make sure I got the right bishop. I mean, I know my Catholicism pretty good, and I'm pretty sure I've listened to plenty of his sermons, but let me make, or homilies, but I'm going to make sure I'm, uh, Fulton Sheen, yeah, that's him. Yeah, he's a Catholic bishop. Yeah, American Bishop of the Catholic Church. So he just uh, conveniently left that. So once again, so I'm assuming Rick Warren's theology says Catholics are Christians. So therefore, Catholicism doesn't have a different gospel. So yeah, I I, I see some possible reasons maybe for such great numerical growth. Maybe, I I could be wrong. Maybe. And Bishop Sheen was visiting a, a leprosy colony somewhere overseas filled with poor people suffering from all kinds of skin diseases. He came up to a man lying in the dirt, dying. And the man was naked except for a cloth around his waist. And the body of this man was covered 
with open source, oozing with pus and liquid. And it was pretty revolting and disgusting. But Fulton Sheen leaned over this poor man to talk to him. And as he did, the chain that he was wearing, that was holding the cross he was wearing, for some reason that chain came unlinked, it broke, and the cross around Fulton Sheen's neck fell into one of the large open wounds on this man's thigh. Sheen said at first he was sickened by what he saw. It, It repulsed him what was happening. It shocked him. But he said, you know, suddenly I was overwhelmed with love for that hurting man. And I reached into that man's oozing wound and I picked up the cross. That story changed my life. I'm not sure if you should take your hand and reach inside an open wound without, I don't know, sterilizing gloves. I don't know. Okay, but all right, just just from a medical perspective, all right. I understand he's trying to tell an emotional story, but I, okay. Because when I heard it, I thought that is the most beautiful description of what God wants Christians to do. He wants us to go out into the world where people are wounded and hurting and suffering and bleeding out into the ugly sores of life, and he wants us to take up the cross. And if we don't do that, I doubt our Christianity. Don't call yourself a Christian if you don't love like that. Don't call yourself a Christian if you don't love like that. So there's a certain love, and if you don't love to a certain level, then you can't call yourself a Christian. Once again, this is so, all of this, just just so that you know, everything that we basically heard in all of this is law, 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 law. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't even call yourself a Christian if you don't love the right way. Well, man, I guess, you know, does anyone love the right way? So I'm telling you today, Rick Warren does. Hey, this church is going to be built on showing compassion to people in pain, regardless of the cause of their pain. When you find a man bleeding on the side of the street, you don't walk up and say, was it your fault? Are you here legally? You just help the guy. And that's what we're going to do in this church. That's love. That's compassion. In the Matthew 25 judgment, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says that the one thing we're going to be evaluated for, evaluated for in that judgment is this, how we treated other people. What judgment is that? What judgment is that for? I don't know. We're not going to get into any doctrine or theology. I was hungry and you fed me. I had no clothes and you gave them to me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. The one thing we're going to be judged for is how we treated other people. And in this church, we're going to treat people with compassion, regardless of their hurt and what caused it. You know, it's so much easier to stand on the sideline and give advice than it is to really love people and enter into their hurt. Walt Whitman once said, I don't ask a wounded man how he feels. I become that man. Sympathy is defined as saying, I'm sorry you hurt. That's sympathy. Empathy is saying, I hurt with you. 
But compassion says, I will do anything I can to stop your hurt. And the Bible says Jesus was often moved with compassion. I will do anything to stop your hurt, even die on the cross to stop your hurt. Real love is not words or emotions. Real love is an action. Real love is something you do. Real love is a choice. And this church is in the love business. And we're going to love thousands of people into heaven. We're going to build bridges of love between our heart and theirs and watch Jesus walk across. So now, having heard all of this, you know the charter of this new church. You know the constitution. You know the vision of what Saddleback Valley Community Church intends to stand for and intends to become. So now it all boils down to two words. Will you? Will you? Will you join us in this extravagant journey, this great adventure? Will you join us in doing God's word as the foundation of our lives? Will you join us in fulfilling God's purposes? Will you join us in trusting God's promises? Will you join us in depending on God's spirit? And will you join us in loving people the way God does? As I close, I want to return to the first verse that I shared with you. Zechariah 4, 6, and 10 says this. You will succeed not on your own strength or your own power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So do not despise these small beginnings. For the eyes of the Lord rejoice to see this work begin. Friends, I've read God's word and I've seen the future. And I can say without any apology that maybe the most significant thing you ever do with your life is join us in building this new church, this new family of God for God's glory. It will certainly outlast everything else you do. It's going to be the adventure of the lifetime. It won't be easy but they're going to be rewards forever and eternity. And I end with this statement of Jesus in Matthew 9, 29. Jesus said, according to your faith, it will be done unto you. You get to decide how much God is going to bless the rest of your life. Little faith, little blessing, much faith, much blessing, great faith, great blessing. According to your faith, it will be done unto you. You get to decide how much God blesses your life. What are you expecting God to do in your life? I'll tell you what God's doing. He's doing what you expect him to do. Because every time God moves out of heaven and moves on earth and does a miracle, is because somebody believes. Well, now I know what my problem is. If I would have expected to be at a, a pastor of a church of, of 5,000, I would have that. If I, if I would expect that the Theology Central podcast was bringing in, you know, $3,000 a month, I guess that would be happening. I guess, uh, man, I got I to gotta expect more. Why does God use me? Because I deserve it? No, because I expect him to. I put my faith in his grace. You need to decide. Am I going to waste my life? Am I going to spend my life? Or am I going to invest my life for something that outlasts my life? The greatest use of your life is to invest it in that which will outlast it. This is your decision. Will you?
Will you join us? Let me pray for you. Now the same promises that we used to start this church are the same promises we used to sustain this church. And they are the same promises that we used to grow this church, to be an international force with campuses on four continents. And now they are the same promises that will guarantee the success of the next generation of this church family under the leadership of Pastor Andy and Stacy. So, I want to conclude this message with the exact same challenge that I gave to those 50, 60 people 43 years ago. Will you, will you, will you join Pastor Andy and Stacy? Will you join them in doing God's word, not just listening to it? Will you join them in fulfilling God's purposes? All five of them. Will you join them in trusting God's promises? Will you join them in depending on God's spirit, not yourself? And will you join them in loving people compassionately and offer them anyone the compassion they need regardless of why they're hurting? Will you, will you commit to Andy and Stacy to continue these things? Will you? Will you? Will you commit to these things? Amen. I see you guys. Amen. God bless you guys. Will you commit to this? Will you do what that group did 43 years ago? I, I love you all so much. In 1980, God was looking for a, a group of ordinary, normal, flawed, imperfect people with weaknesses and didn't have it all together. But he was looking for a group of people who just said, yes, Lord, yes, God, that he could use in an extraordinary way. Guess what? He found them. And we're all here as a result. We're all here as a result. Now, in 2022, God is again looking for ordinary, flawed, imperfect, weak, don't have it all together people who will simply say yes to God. God, you can use us in the next generation of Saddleback Church. And you just said you will be those people. I want you to listen to a song, and then I'm going to come back and pray for you. Have a seat and listen to this song, and I'll close. Okay. Hang on, we got to see what song it is real quick.
Oh, God uses ordinary people, I guess is the thing. So there you have it. That's the end of the era. That's the end of the Rick Warren era. His his legacy will live on in certain ways, at least in historical studies, because of the purpose-driven church, good or bad. There's a lot there to unpack, but we're at two hours and four minutes. That took forever. I apologize. We had one little internet hiccup, but it doesn't appear to mess anything up. We had a volume that was way too low. So this was greatly imperfect, but I thought that I had to get this today because yesterday was the last day. By Wednesday or Thursday, everyone's already going to move on. Maybe there'll probably be some, some, you know, programs looking back over the the ministry of Rick Warren. There'll probably be a book or who knows, a documentary. Who knows? Rick Warren will probably end up in podcasting and have a podcast that will have 8 billion people listening to it. Who knows? So we're not going to hear the last of him, but that's the end of that era. Saddleback, Saddleback Church, no longer under the leadership of Rick Warren. It now will be Andy and Stacy Wood, and we'll see what becomes of Saddleback Church. After all of this work to build what it became, what, where, where will it go? But I will argue his last sermon was his first sermon, and his first sermon established that the entire foundation of the church was completely questionable. However, look what the, he succeeded. What supposedly God gave him, everything came to pass just as he said it would in his first sermon. That is, you got to reconcile that in your own mind, because that either tells me that that was God, which then makes me question everything I've ever done in ministry and my whole philosophy of ministry, which is the direct opposite of Rick Warren's, or it tells me that so much of what we see in church, the big corporate churches, all of the success, even in moderate-sized churches, even in small churches, so much of it has very little to do with God, His Word, and it all has to do with human ingenuity, human dedication, and guess what? It, you know what's very helpful? Having money. I hate to say it, having money. He went to a, he went, he chose a location that was wealthy and he chose a location that was going to grow, that was projected to grow dramatically. He, he picked the right location. He got the right people, had the right money and was able to build, a, 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 you know, from a human perspective, an amazing, you know, campus. Um, so it, it's just, I wonder how much of it is so much just purely human. I mean, I, I mean, how much of it is God and how much of it is it just us? I, I don't know if we can ever draw the distinction. You, know, you have a church with wealthy people. Those churches tend to grow because the building gets nicer or you get a nicer building. You have money to, I mean, you know how much money it costs to try to send letters out to everyone in your community? You know how much money it is to even build, have a sign for your church? I mean, there's things that we can't even do because we don't even have the money. I, I know just from a podcasting thing, just from the things we try to do. So it, I wonder how much of it was money, location, people, and and but he, of course, he would believe that it was all of God. That that's a different podcast for a different day. That concludes the era of Rick Warren. Let me have your feedback. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Yes, this is the longest episode we've ever done. I apologize, but I did not want to break that into two parts. I did not want to break that into two parts. I wanted it all to be done today. So there it is. We've done it. We'll talk about it again soon. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.